Hello, my fellow mods, and welcome to The Perspecta. I'm your host, John O'Neill, and in association with DC Hillier and MCM Daily, we're here to bring you the first episode of Modernist Design Stories and Discoveries. As always, we're joined by my good friend and producer, Greg Gibaldi. And today, for our first episode, we welcome someone you all know very well who has been our true guiding force and kind enough to join Greg and myself on this journey to build your favorite mid-century modern design podcast. We're proud to welcome you into this first conversation with DC Hillier. You, you might need to give us a little tour here. Uh, yeah, any, uh, any key pieces? I, I see two Coronas. A Gunter Beltzig uh, prototype florist chair, one of three made. Um, that's, that's that red. The red thing here. There. That's the most uncomfortable thing in the world to sit on if you're over five foot six, which was <laughs> how tall Gunter Beltzig was. Right. He built it for his own frame. Uh, we have Serge Mouy lamp in the background, those black cat, uh, cats. Uh, uh, black shades, excuse me. Yeah. There's a sculpture back there. Um, forget the. Uh, Artist, not a very well-known thing, but it's got the best name ever. It's Space Mushroom. Um, <laughs> cool. There is a number six Macallan up there, courtesy of Dan, yeah. uh, in a black coffin. Uh, Nanoditzel coffee table, solid couch, uh, rack lamp from Amsterdam. I feel like I'm dancing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm staring at my own frame. I'm doing it. But I need to see what's behind me. That's it for now. I know you had a 12-foot TV. <laughs> That's the yeah. white. <laughs> I was gonna say we can white balance off of the uh, the projection uh, back there. Yeah, That's yeah. cool. How uh, how else are you going to consume movies and film like you do? Well, there was something interesting that was going around about there was such a buildup. I'm not a big fan of Marvel or superhero movies. I like a couple yeah. of them. I like Doctor Strange. I think I might have been the only one. But about the new uh, Wonder Woman movie, there was so much hype. That it was one of the most expensive promotional budgets ever for a film. And it really? came out and it was, it was brought on, um, I think it was in theater, some limited theater, but it was mostly streamed. Yeah. And it was panned. Like it was such a, almost like a diametric opposite of the original reception for the first film. And people were citing the story and whatnot. But there was a comedian in Britain, Jimmy Carr, who said that when we're home watching comedy, we don't, gen for alone, we don't generally laugh. Uh, a laughter <laughs> is a shared experience. So if there was yeah. someone with us or other people with us, we're all in on that joke. And they're saying streaming movies is the same thing. People are yeah, way yeah. more critical when it's an intimate setting in their home, but they're also not getting that shared feedback from a theater crowd. So they're watching yeah, a film yeah, with a true. way more critical eye than they would in the theater. I um, so I think the Wonder Woman movie, frankly, the second one, this is nothing to do with design, but it's about perception and whatnot, sure. is more, probably not as bad as everyone said. If it was shown in a theater, I think it would have gotten a far better reception. Get a little bit more energy going in there. Yeah, I think the that, that's the thing yeah, about going to I could see that. And I remember, because I went to see way back, yeah, literally in another millennium, the, the Blair Witch Project. Oh, it oh, was yeah. classic. It was, now, we went on opening night. I was with a friend of mine. She and I went. We waited in line because we were one of those early adopters of the internet going viral. It was a viral campaign yeah. Yeah. for that movie. And in, it, before social media, so it was amazing. You had to go to the website and join in a chat. Right. And what was great about that move that first night is that the crowd was so hyped. I mean, everyone cheered and was at the end of it. 
We thought it was the best horror film ever made. Yeah. And second, in hindsight, perhaps not, but it's still really enjoyable. The second night, another friend was pissed off because I was supposed to go to the opening with him. So yeah. I went the second. Oh, you went twice. Yeah. And it was everybody and you didn't tell the was second friend that you went with the first friend, right? <laughs> everybody was booing at the end of the second night. So it went from. So yeah, it, it is a weird energy of a crowd. Yeah. Um, I think in some ways you can apply that to design. What yeah. makes a design universal, timeless, classic? Like yeah. why is, I'm going to use a really obvious example, why is an Eames lounge such a classic chair? Why does it work wherever you put it? They knew in the 50s that this was a timeless chair in a weird way because if you yeah. go through that sort of one of those, uh, I forget which museum, uh, Museum of Michigan uh, put out a book of Eames. They did a retrospective of the Eames work. Cranbrook? And Early ads, like from 1956, 57, showed the Eames in a country house, in a Victorian parlor, the lounge, and it was it looked great. In oh, every wow. room they put it in, it yeah. was just a classic piece, and they sort of knew that. Um, what's interesting, most people don't realize, of course, it was Eames' first, the, the Charles Murray Eames' first upholstered chair, and that's how they were advertising really? it. Yeah, I it was all plastic. It was all plastic, before that. yeah. And uh, it was, you know, the Eames's first upholstered chair was one of the ads when <laughs> they did a pretty good job. <laughs> and in, in 1958, there was an ad as well showing other Eames products, mostly the shell chairs, uh, most the low tables. Yeah. And there was a warning at the beginning of the ad says, don't buy fakes. So even then, there were wow. knockoffs being made just a year, a year or two into the production of most of the pieces. So it's crazy. Uh, Noel crazy. has a similar story. Uh, oh, yeah. the, the hardoy or butterfly chair, the leather yeah. butterfly. It's like a sling chair. Uh, in 1939, um, Kaufman was in, uh, um, uh, Venezuela, uh, in Venezuela and he yeah. was at a furniture fair. And that's where they saw this chair, decided in 1950 to start producing it. Because it was such a simple form, it was immediately knocked off in the hundreds. And it was yeah. only the real one, which is so rare, it was only made for a year. And even though they've been, they were in production wow. for about 30 years, most 99% of them are fake. Are fake. Uh, yeah, he pulled it off the market because yeah, he tried fighting the fakes, tried fighting the copies, but yeah, yeah. easy, easy, cheap thing to make. Noel's charging times as much for it. So, you know. That is something I wanted to ask you about. Just your thought on balancing, you know, in your home <laughs> from an interior design perspective, right? Reproductions versus originals and, and and where where you might be able to cut corners a little bit? Nowhere. <laughs> okay. No, no, no. I like I, it. No. I like it. Obviously, it, you, 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 there's the, the air of the snobbery when you yeah. say don't have fakes in your home. Sure. And and there's a there's a rule of general a general rule obviously yeah. there's no hard set rules in design but there's a general rule in design if you have ten thousand dollars to do a room that's a good budget but Okay, you can get a couple of nice original pieces, <clears throat> but if you have five thousand or half that budget, yeah, and get one good piece because yeah. your room will one good original piece, and maybe just a couple of cheaper. It doesn't have to be anything nice, but try try to avoid knockoffs. So rather than having a room filled with cheap stuff, you have a room that has that great wardrobe in it, right? That people, you know, that's that's what Favorite that room. Piece. Eventually, yeah. you'll get enough. For instance, a friend of mine went. Friend of mine is a fiance at the time. They were in Denmark and they were traveling the countryside and they went cool. and they were, they met some people in a town. They were invited back to their home and it was like a farmhouse. And in the farmhouse was an original egg chair, Arne Jacobson egg chair. Wow. And the, the wife uh, or the woman, I should say, of the home said that she had saved for years to be able to afford that piece. 
Yeah. And yeah. that was, that's, they, of course, it's Denmark. They have a, almost a reverence for good design. Right. Uh, and it shows. But they are so opposed as a people, generally speaking, uh, to knockoffs. Uh, better to save and get a good real one. What's neat about that, too, is, and I don't want to run on about it, but Herman Miller, uh, or Noel for that matter, Dan has an office chair, an original Noel office chair, the light yeah. chair. And it's not mid-century, but it's a great chair, very well-rated. He bought it used. But Noel yep. honors its 12-year guarantee, even if you sell it to somebody else. The arm was broken. Really? Two guys from Noel or representatives of Noel showed up here, replaced the arm, and walked out. Like it was no way. Try getting IKEA to do that, for instance. Um, it would never happen, and that's why I think you you get an assurance of quality. It's not so yeah. much a it's original, so therefore you have bragging rights to an original uh, whatever chair. Yeah, uh, it's one of those things where there's a Russian. I'm going to quote the entire planet today. There's a Russian expression that says, "I can't afford cheap things." Um, except it's in Russian. Yeah, I can see that. I, I like that one. Uh, and th that's the idea is that it's better to save your money if you have to, or there's an even fun, more fun way of doing it. I don't think you have to pay a lot for originality. No. I don't think you necessarily have to, but should, should sometimes. Um, you can go to any uh, good antique store or even yeah. online for that matter and find uh, good pieces, Norwegian pieces, for instance, which are usually like a quarter of the price of Danish design pieces. Yeah. You can find a dining table uh, from, what's a good example, Borg Morgensen uh, of Denmark, for instance. You can pay 500 bucks for a, a, a table, a dining table that's already lasted 60 sure. years. Probably going to last 60 more easily. Yeah, um, when it's when it's um, lasted the test of time, right? And, and, and that's why I think so many people from different, you know, household income level, let's say, or even interest in luxury goods one way or another can, can find a, a space here in this kind of community, right? Because you can go to the thrift store and pick up, I think I saw one posted recently, full Perspecta dining room set for $300, Right. Uh, full dining room set. I mean, it, it's still out there. I, I feel like over time, the amount of, uh, you know, key pieces out in the wild are going to keep dwindling as, as people scoop them up. But there's an entry point. If, if you if you wait, if you learn right part of the mission here, if you know what you're looking for, um, you know, uh, yeah. you, you can go and, and browse and hopefully you find something that um, that becomes that statement piece. And if you do so with a, a low budget, even better. But what's interesting when I first started posting, uh, like I started my uh, not sorry, not the MCM Daily, but the previous MCM uh, Modern Group, uh, yeah. Mystery Modern Group, a group still there. I'm no longer. Uh, I still contribute. And I don't longer run it. Yep. Uh, I would post nice pieces like here's a Pavel uh, Pavel Tynal, uh snowflake lamp. Yes, it's sixty thousand dollars on average. Yeah. Uh, they're rare. They're beautiful. I seem to be the only fan of them because whenever I post one. I like almost no light. I, don't know, I just think it's a really beautiful thing. Yeah. Now, I would tell people the reason, and, and I would not just post expensive or rare items. I would post items that I thought were interesting, things that I like, even yeah. things that I wasn't really fond of, because I think other people might really enjoy this little quirky piece or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. And um, a woman, uh, I said, look, wouldn't it be great if you saw that developed by now lamp in a thrift in a thrift shop? Not really that likely. But it could happen with any piece that I've shown that was sort of a more expensive item. You can find it. I know somebody who found a chieftain chair in a Salvation <laughs> Army. Wow. So 
Now, a woman sent me a message. She said, here's a photo. My neighbor is downsizing. She has this lamp in her hallway. Now, it wasn't the big snowflake. It was the smaller snowflake. Still worth about half, about 30,000, about 30, I think it's the going price on those. Wow. Um, and she said she offered to sell it to her. And she says, so what's a good price for it? And I jokingly shot back, well, anything less than 30000 is a good price for it. <laughs> right. And she decided that it was unfair. Wow. She was a good, good, good person. She said the woman retired. It was unfair for her to offer $50 for this land. So yep. she arranged to have it sent to auction where it did go for about 30000 so. Wow. Well, so, that was that was the, the noble move. <laughs> well, the surgeon, the surgeon we lamp behind me, the black lamp. Yeah. At auction, it's been consistent for the last 12, 15 years. Consistently around twenty five thousand uh, wow. dollars for that lamp. So Dan and I wandered into, just wandered off the street. We went to look at a shelving system uh, that a woman had posted for sale online, and we go there. And I'm looking at the wall and I'm going, that can't be a real one, right? You never see them in the wild like that. Sure. And we got a really fair price for it. Um, and I don't think she was looking to sell, but I had to have it. And what's one of those lamps <laughs> I've only ever yeah. seen online or in photos? I've never seen it in person. And I was always indifferent to it until I saw it in person. Yeah. And I was like, wow, that, I really love that lamp. I love it so much in person. It's like a car. You know, you see a car in the ads and it looks, wow, that's a hot looking car. And you see it in person and it's a Cobra Walt car. It's like, yeah. yeah. A good case in point, the, uh, the Land Rover Velar. You know, the new ones, they look amazing in the photos. You see them in person, it's like, oh, it's an Evoque. Okay. Right. <laughs> of course. I was going to slip in cars somewhere. You knew I yep. was going to slip. No, I know. Yeah. My second yeah. passions. It's you cars. had to. Yeah. Uh, Do you have a car right now? Uh, we drive a Land Rover Discovery. Cool. Yeah. Orange. Because we want to be noticed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, a- anybody nearby DC. And what uh, we'll, we'll backtrack now a little bit. Okay. Um, yeah. Where are you currently living generally? Downtown Montreal. Downtown Montreal. Okay, so anyone in downtown Montreal, if you're out there and you here's see his address, oh, oh, Robin. yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> that's that's as far as we'll go. But that's a that's a car that will will certainly stick out. Very cool. I have an old uh, a new you know 2012 Mini Cooper, and uh, it's actually kind of kind of close to my heart. When I was really young, um, and this is part of the reflection I've had over time, just being interested in retro products let's say mm. you know um because minis i believe came out in 56 we'll fact check that one I but uh yeah 56 so it was that year it was available in beige <laughs> well there you go <laughs> and dc this is why i wanted to <laughs> contact you and start a podcast together <laughs> because that's that i mean that's an incredible uh, i tell you that you know that because <laughs> the new one the new the new minis yeah uh, I think I don't think it currently is, but a, a couple of few years ago, they they brought back that exact beige. Really? Like, they looked, They went into the yeah. records. They got the color, and it is as ugly as you would think. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, like it's such the, a cute car, and you put it in the most drab color. These know? are the moves that we want. Apologies to anyone driving a. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right, Mini Cooper. Right. Mine, mine's dark blue. Yeah, Greg's got a beige Mini Cooper though. So <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, uh, all right. But yeah, I, I think, um, you know, that's what we hope or that, that's what I hope when, when brands are coming out with retro products. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what I'm hoping they're doing, right, is going back into the archives. They're, they're looking for, you know, to capture what was special about, you know, a, 
those original products. And I think some will and some won't. Um, the the way I want to go right now is actually, you know, with the most recent news on Nolan Herman Miller. Uh, do, we, do we think that does anything, you know, in terms of combining their forces? Certainly, unfortunately, I'm sure they're going to be layoffs in, in one way or shape or form. Um, yeah. I hope all those folks that get really good jobs, right? Um, but ultimately, do do we think that helps them at all? Um, be be genuine to the past. I tell you who it doesn't help, and it doesn't help the consumer. Sure. Now I tell you, it was interesting because sure. just uh, a couple of days ago, there was a you know one of those retro, almost kitschy retro uh, Facebook groups, sure. and they'll post like photos of shopping, uh, shopping uh, department stores in the fifties or sixties. Yeah. And there was a husband and wife, obviously dressed up. It was a real photo. It wasn't staged. And and everyone always comments, oh, people used to get dressed up to go out then. That's probably the most common comment. Yeah. And um, but she was they sorry, she, she, but they were looking at blenders. And there was a row of about had to be at least a dozen different blenders. Wow. And by the looks of them, mostly different brands. So they had a choice. So if yeah. they got a Kenmore blender and it was a piece of crap, well, they'll go to get the Westinghouse one. And Kenmore goes, hey, we have sure. to up our game because we're not. So with Herman Miller and Noel, they sort of reached this sort of uh, pact, if you will, that and yeah. it was not necessarily an active pact, but it just so happened that Noel always had a stronger office market. Herman yep. Miller had a stronger home market. Yep. And so for Herman Miller to gain that office market, but it's good for them. But the problem with that is, uh, now first off, for Noel, the last 14 months, there's been almost no office. So, you know, yeah. Uh, I don't, I'm not sure how much that affected their bottom line, but it's definitely going to hurt. I have to I imagine think, that was part of the reason why, right? That, that, yeah. That and I think that's the problem with time. when you lose competition, you lose innovation. And that's yep. the thing. Like, what's our edge in the market? And they said, well, we don't need any more. We don't need an edge anymore. They have no choice. Right. Whatever we come up with, that's what they get. And if you want a quality American made, Piece. Now, it turns out Herman Miller's actually, no, I don't know for sure, but they may have been outsourcing some of their construction. Uh, yeah. The I've, of piece. I've, I've read that. Yeah. Um, and that is something that so goes against what the company was founded on. Uh, I mean, hell, I think they unionized, good wages, quality yeah. pieces, got a problem with your piece, we will show up at your door and replace it. Um, I don't know if that's going to continue. That, hope that continues. Also, yeah. Bottom line is, the bigger the company gets, the, obviously the bottom line is important to every company, but the bigger it gets, the more important that bottom line seems to get, especially if it's publicly traded at all. I don't Absolutely. know. I didn't look it up, but I don't know if either Noel or Herman Miller were publicly traded companies. I'm not so. sure. Um, I'm not sure. We can look at Yeah, that I don't know, but I'm going to look into it. I think I mean, there's always the corporatist, if you will, and I'm not saying that in a negative way, but they believe that it's simply synergy. It's market yeah. synergy. It's, is we needed that office uh, uh, mark, and we need it, and we yeah. we have a two billion dollars to spare, so let's have it. I do like the sort of ginger nature of how they're promoting it. It's not so much an acquisition or takeover; uh, it's a merger. Yeah, which it is outright buyout. Yeah, they, they started there, yeah. <laughs> and then little by little, it became. Oh yeah, uh, acquisition, right? Yeah, again, it's it's, it's interesting. It's, it's what the market bears. It's what happens in the market, and. I'm not opposed to a free market, clearly, but uh, I just think that I hope there's a certain level of autonomy between yeah. the two entities, or at least for Noel. 
because NOLA has always been innovative. Yeah. They're, they're constantly working on and developing more or better ergonomics for their office chairs or anything like that. They're uh, one of the first kind of larger companies to manufacture stand-up desks, for instance, that yep. work. You know? uh, so we'll see. And they do continue to to move out. I mean, I, I feel like little by little, I I read about a designer, and and Noel isn't necessarily uh, outwardly saying that they now own that designer's catalog, right? <laughs> but they do. Right, right, right? Right. Kagan is one of those examples, right? I didn't yeah. really know also that they owned Holly Hunt. Yeah. Um, you know, so these and and again, I, I think that's the difference too, and and you know, tracks back to why I think this, this podcast could be really helpful is that's an enthusiast level, right. Who, who doesn't necessarily know every nuance of the industry, but yeah. the, the more you uncover, it's, you know, it's like, uh, having little crumbs out there. Oh, look at this cool sofa. Oh, Kagan's owned by Noel now at this point. That's, that's, you know, it's funny because I mean, there, there used to be a Kagan Dreyfus in New York. Uh, and it was a, such a, a very small company that often if you ordered, a lounge chair, you'd have to wait six months to get it because they sure. weren't a big company at all. Still going. They follow me on Instagram. So does Noel, but yeah. Herman Miller doesn't. So I can badmouth Herman Miller. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Hey, Herman Miller, if you're listening, uh, Herman himself, <laughs> go, follow, uh, go follow DC. Herman Miller, yeah, Herman Miller himself. Um, <laughs> just, but, uh, yeah, just, like, um, just like Ken Coffey, not a real person, everybody, just so you know. Curtis Curtis Jer. Yes, so, that's another one. Actually, two people. It's, it's, it's a it's a made up made up name for. And so the the second one was Jerry, right? Yeah. And I always I wonder now in terms of in terms of pronunciations, was it Jer? Like my mom's name is actually Jerry. Shout out, mom. And uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm sure people refer to her as Jer. So I'm 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 curious. We're gonna have to ask Curtis if uh, if that was the the casual name for uh, for Jer instead of Jer. But I think they were probably going for a bit of a French. I think they wanted sort of to give it a cachet, a little foreign sounding cachet, which was you know permissible in the fifties and sixties. Totally. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I'll get one of those. Isn't that like Hagen Dazs? Like Hagen Dazs is is New Jersey. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Exactly. Made up thing. That is a made up. I think it's a Danish or meant to be a Danish term. I don't or, think it sound mean, Danish, right? Like it's just I'm Danish. Yeah. Huh? Yeah. You're Greg. You're totally right. <laughs> I can contribute well, my ice cream knowledge here. <laughs> love it. Yeah. I, so going back to Kagan for a second, just to give a little origin story for me. Um, my uncle worked at Kagan uh, for a long yeah. time as, as they were coming back and, and he was really an early influence for me to start to understand, you know, what that that furniture really could be art in many ways. And, yeah. and I think it I certainly believe that it is, um, I mean, you know, so. maybe not so much the the flat pack stuff that we're getting. But, I you know, I have some of that as well, you know, and you, you put it together and, you know, to an extent, maybe that's a gateway for somebody appreciating furniture because they, they actually see how it's constructed. So won't totally bad mouth Ikea, maybe quality wise, but, um, the quality is that uh, the quality has definitely declined, but think about Ikea. Uh, I mean, it's been around for a long time. It's been around since like 1943. Long time. Um, and their first like major stores were opening in the fifties in Europe. Um, they used to have right up into the 80s. I remember 
that they used to have, and you open their catalogs, and they would have features on the actual designers. So they would tell oh, you who designed cool. this piece, you know, their, their, their expertise, where they trained or studied or even apprenticed. And then they would show the pieces that designer designed uh, with a little sort of uh, explanation of what's the thinking behind the piece and whatnot. Sure. And that was actually a big selling point is that it made you, they thought knowing who the person behind the piece was, was a selling point that it made yeah. it more intimate for you that there's a person, there's hands that designed this um, as opposed to a machine that probably made it. Um, <laughs> but they decided no, nah, they threw it all. I mean, they really, by the time you get to the nineties, it was, I mean, sure, the classics were always going to be there, but the, yeah, there was yeah. a deep decline in the quality. I remember it's been it's been a long time since I've been in IKEA, but the last time I was there maybe ten years ago. Yeah, and I do upholstery. Uh, oh, one of the reasons I, I got into that. design is there's, there's a story behind that. <clears throat> um, that um, I was looking at the edge and proper upholstery, not to get it too technical, but the seam is on the inside usually. That's you know, sure. it's, it's it's how you actually give it strength. You double stitch the inside seam. And the scenes on the sofa literally were outside. Uh, and there was no form. There was no tucking. Everything was, wow. it had the air of cheapness. I couldn't, I think I even left the store. I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't yeah, I not to be a that. drama queen, but I am. But, uh, you know, but here I got in, how I got into design, talking about knockoffs and whatnot. And yeah. when I was at art school, uh, I was with someone, we couldn't afford much because, well, we were students. Uh, you know, we don't have a lot of money. So, but he had a, a a thing for 50s kitschy kind of stuff. I wasn't so much into the kitschy stuff, but I kind of liked the aesthetics of the mid-century, if you will. Sure. And yeah. problem is you go to the junk store and you find the pieces, they often reeked or mildewed or whatever. So I decided to take it for myself to learn upholstery and to yeah. learn furniture refinishing. Uh, so that's how I got into mid-century modern. It's how I also know that you can get some really, maybe it could be a little more difficult these days, but also how to get really good quality pieces. If you just sure. learn a few skills, my ex still has so many of those pieces that I refinished and reupholstered. So yeah, it's, um, yeah. I just think that uh, furniture should not be, or design shouldn't be a snobbery thing. Yeah, It so often is. And I see it all the time, too often actually, in the Instagram accounts that I follow. Now they're not being, yeah. they're not trying to be, snobby i don't want to i don't really like the word snobby but they're not trying to be a, a loose or elitist with their yeah. stuff but they're i like the slice of it i like this is the cars they were driving these were the movie stars they were watching these are the tv shows this was the couch they sat on when they watched those tv shows yep uh, i do tend to go towards more higher end design pieces but sometimes it's just a little you know it used to be that waste bucket the rosewood waste bucket Sure. You could get one of those for a hundred bucks. It's, it's expensive, but it's a waste bucket that you can't put anything wet in. So, uh, <laughs> well, it's functional three, about and that, now yeah. they're three thousand, four thousand dollars. For some reason, people yeah. went crazy for them, and they're not even. First off, it's rare for a Norwegian piece, and I'm not knocking a Norwegian piece. They have beautiful design from Norway, but the market seems to have a bit of a thumb. They thumb their nose out a little bit, uh, sure. preferring Danish design or even Swedish or Finnish design, as far as the Scandinavian designers go. But Norwegian pieces you'll find are just as well made. And in most cases, I think just as easily as well designed. And that's a bit of a tip for those collecting. If you like the Scandinavian modern, just yeah. look for the Norwegian pieces. Mm. You know, you'll always save money on those and they're great. So tip, that's a tip for you. Great Norway. tip. I love it. Norway, your discount Scandinavian modern. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, not all of I, it, not all of it. 
Right. Yeah. You still need a discerning, discerning eye. Do a little research, and you know. Well, that's I, what this podcast is for. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was trying to explain the podcast to my partner, and it's very simple. You're walking in here with an interest, but maybe not with the knowledge. And right. I think that's the best place to start. Yeah. Because obviously, because it's well, because it's the beginning. Uh, people show up and listen and watch and learn something. Uh, but also, as I've said, I think it's 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 nice to have the conversation about design. Why why do we think it's important? Like yeah. we think it's so important that we're taking time out of our Sunday to fiddle <laughs> with fussy electronics to make a podcast that we hope poorly designed will electronics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I think that's yeah. I want people to understand design, not necessarily get to know design. And yeah. that sounds a little little lofty and whatnot, perhaps a bit academic. It's but. a bit of both. And I, I think the visual nature of what we want to put out. Yeah. Um, and and the ability to see a piece, right? And and you can listen in audio form, you can you can look in visual form and, and YouTube and Facebook where we're gonna post it, but um the ability to connect, you know, a certain designer with that visual image and, and discover something, right? That that's what really uh, initially made me say. I think a podcast could work, right? And I think Greg, in our early conversations, really came along and said, you need to make it visual. Well, because- At least have the option. Yeah, I don't uh, do this stuff. So when, when John was talking about a podcast, I was like, well, I want to see it. You know, if we're if we're yeah. just chatting, you know, I think it's important for people to be able to see what we're talking about or even the people who made it, you know, flash a little thing on the screen and anything like that. So when John- initially texted me or whatever he was just asking me about a microphone the microphone yeah. broke today actually <laughs> so bad bad recommendation on my part i guess but um <laughs> basically he was like i'm gonna do a podcast and i was like well it has to be a video yeah and, and it, it'll be it'll be a good balance and and honestly it's it's almost like if you reach a level in your expertise that you can listen to the podcast and not need the video, <laughs> then yeah. then you've achieved. <laughs> I think I recommended a channel. mod status. Yeah, I, th I think I recommended a channel to you. And they are crass New Yorkers, but they're they're intelligent and they have great banter. Sure. They don't they don't want to. It's called the Basement Yard. So shout out to Joey Santagato. Sure, I'm trying to get him to follow me because he gets everyone. Um, get him to follow you. We'll we'll tag him, and we're uh, yeah. we're gonna have him on. The reason, reason I like it because you will learn something, even if it's the most absurd detail. And the banter that they share is it's silly most times, but it's it's genuine and it's heartfelt. Yeah. And I think that it's from just uh, for them, it's just an affection for each other. Really, it's just they've been friends forever and whatnot. I think for here, it's the commonality of interests, and yeah. it's not necessarily it's not a lecture. You know what I mean? It's just right. basically, this is what we know. This is what our feelings are about these pieces. We can showcase a piece, I'm hoping, uh, or pieces, or a particular designer, obviously. Uh, and I also would like to court a, little, uh, court a little controversy. There are always designers that people love or hate. Jean Royer, French designer, designed the most ludicrous, cartoonish furniture. To And it's... And, and I'm not joking, like a pair of his ambassador chairs, they're just, they look like they came out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon. <laughs> uh, they're at least a half a million dollars, if you want. Wow. It's, it, it's one of the most that. expensive designers in the world. And people look at it and go, I can't believe somebody paid X thousands of dollars for this cartoon. Uh, sure. It's 
but I have a, I kind of like them. <laughs> I, I, I would never have one for obvious reasons. I don't have the money, but right. I just, I just love the fact that he just, especially in French designers. So when you consider Corbusier or Parion or Genere, there's sort of a, an austerity to French design. There's, there's certainly an ethos or, or, you know, a, a theme, if you will, with yeah. what they're doing. I've studied a little uh, Aristotle. And, I got the ethos. Yeah, and, and Jean Rare <laughs> went, no, I'm going to have some fun with it. I'm going to do things that my 12-year-old self would have loved. And so I'm hoping we can do a lot of that, a little bit of that stuff. Yeah. Um, it's just fun. And all and of those uh, great French pronunciations you have there, I feel like I'd, I'd be uh, remiss if we didn't mention sort of even our, our first conversation, DC, I said, how do you pronounce your last name? <laughs> I think I said fudge. <laughs> right. This is my mother's maiden name, by the way. Right, right. Um, but it is um, Hillier, correct? It's Hillier. I, I always, if if I'm at the store and just I got a prescription refilled recently, it's a classic example. It's always Ilier. Right. Uh, that's how they pronounce. So often they'll pronounce it that way here at the dentist, whatever. You know. Right. I'd say well, Starbucks, but I don't go to Starbucks. And if they do ask me my name, I say Mister Hillier. <laughs> I don't. I don't go to Starbucks. <laughs> <laughs> you won't say him at a Starbucks, but uh, yeah, I th I think the pronunciations it, that that is a almost a, a grade in itself, right? It you know, is. once you it start, um, and, and that's what I want to be able to provide, right? So I we're going to do a, a series. Of yes, absolutely, yeah, it's a great list. Yeah. So, so what we're going to do with that list and and DC? I think you said that was one of your most consumed articles on MCI. Oh, absolutely. Right? The Danish pronunciations, for instance. Um, when you see his name, his first name is quite simple, P-E-T-E-R, you go Peter, uh, but his last name is H-V-I-D-T. So how do you pronounce that guy's name? And I've been always, before I heard it pronounced correctly, I was calling it Idvid. And I was thinking that, I've never heard that name before, yeah. but it doesn't sound right. I know it's not. It's actually pronounced Vilf. Vilf. <laughs> Peter Vilf. And I'm going, that's not how you spell Vilf. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I didn't know that. No, but one. it was, and, that, and there's like Finuel, if you don't pronounce the J, Hans Wegner, yeah. uh, you pronounce it as a V, for instance. Those are clear. Uh, Arn, it's not Arne Jacobson. I already made that mistake today. Uh, it's Arnie Jacobson. Is right? it? Yeah, it's oh. Arnie Jacobson. Right? Well, we won't and most people say Arn, our... but it's actually Arnie. Yeah? It's and the Danish, the Danish names are more fun to pronounce. Mm. Uh, Paul Klederholm, for instance, one of my favorite names. Uh, probably one of my Probably, the, I, I would have to say one of the top five best Danish designers ever is Paul uh, Klederholm. Uh, I just like saying his name. <laughs> yeah. So we'll, but, yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna put a series on to promote the podcast, right? And and the intention, you know, have little snackable videos so that you can go through and you could brush up on your pronunciations because. What happened with me and and part of why I wanted to do this as well and have as many firsthand conversations as I could was that I was consuming a lot of this information online, you know, through Facebook groups, through Instagram, through discovery, right? Certainly, you know, a lot of your your posts were, you know, the stories that you were telling were, you know, really, I'd say, um, impressing upon me that there was just so much out there. Right. And, um, but I, I realized the moment I found somebody else, Greg and I have a, uh, a friend in common, Dan. Um, and I would start to talk to Dan about designers and I wouldn't know how to pronounce them. <laughs> you know, it's like the moment comes where you've done all this research and you've learned yep. about something you're passionate about. And you're like, 
Milo Baugman. <laughs> Did you see his his new uh, you Milo know his chair? Right, um, a friend, a Facebook friend, I should say, who was a moderator in the Mid Century Modern Group, had applied for a job at uh, Design Within Reach, sure. and it's now his career. He's a He's been working there for 10 years. No, maybe eight years. doesn't matter. But Great. the day before he went in for his interview, I published the pronunciation list on, in the Facebook group. And he, said, he sent, me, sent me an email about a week later uh, saying that if you hadn't published that list, I don't think I would have got the job because they were most impressed that I knew how to pronounce several names. Because he was at, who are your favorite designers? That's sure. the question you would ask someone trying to work at a design uh, uh, okay. Absolutely. Oh yeah, he knew how to, and I think he may have chosen that. I have to. I would. I can't confirm, but I think he chose the more obscure ones, the ones that are sure. so far removed from what you think they'd be pronounced as. Um, now I'm not sure I'm saying he got the job because of that, but he seems right. to credit for at least hey, helping him get get a career. You know, and it, look, it's a it's a key piece of information, and yeah, just like you said, education. You know, we we want to make this accessible, in my opinion, certainly. And I, I think even, you know, between you, Greg, and I, we really run the gamut right? of of sort of Greg being new to this stuff, this stuff but really interested and, and passionate about design, certainly in music. And and uh, I'll plug jazz from the 50s, too, certainly. That theme song, Greg. Oh, yeah. It's incredible. Well, um, I'm making a playlist as well. Ooh, all right. Oh, I, I, Greg, I really enjoyed the music you put on the sample. Oh, thank you. So, I, was, I was watching it going, how are they going to get clearance for that? <laughs> yeah. yeah. I cleared it, so we're good. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're good. I mean, Greg, it was that so in writing, we could be sued later. <laughs> Greg, Greg comes to me, we're, we're talking through this a little bit, and he says, do you, do you mind if I, you know, write a, write a song for the theme song? <laughs> I was like, Greg, are you kidding me? That, that's incredible. Please. Lyrics and Hold on. Please do. <laughs> yeah, the lyrics I mean, there's are a lot all of generic YouTube names. <laughs> there, there. I, I didn't want to go that route because I felt like there was, uh, there is this sort of style to, you know, obviously mid-century modern is about the '50s and '60s and that, and um, you know, I didn't, I didn't want to just grab some old, any old bossa nova tune. I wanted it to be sort of, you know, special. yeah, special, exactly. You know the yeah, album Bossa Jazz? Sure. It's like a black. That, that is one of the best Bossa albums ever. I mean, I know it's a compilation. I'm sure there's plenty of. I just love that okay. album so much. I used okay. to work out to it back when I used to work out. <laughs> it's just yeah, a good that, that's a great, uh, great rhythm to be able to get into. Yeah, when you're when you're jogging. Uh, I, I used, I'm, but then I'm again, sure I used to, I used to work out to XTC, the British band. <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> yeah. Amazing band. Yeah, XTC it. fans tend to be a little little far into the fandom thing. Yeah, they are. Yeah, for sure. I <laughs> As we sit here talking yeah. about. <laughs> there you go. I actually wanted to add, like, now that like this is a good segue, I think, about the Claritone um, stuff. Oh. There's a Claritone right there. <laughs> oh, wow. It's a Claritone speaker anyway right there. Yep. Yep. I yeah, can see it. I was curious about that. It's, a, you know, such a solid ah. thing. How did you end up getting involved with, with that? I'll go back to art school again for that one. Um, the story, I'll try to keep it brief, but one, it was foundation year, first year of art school, where they try to expose you to everything art and design for students so that you can sort of decide what your interests are. And a lot of people like myself decided, I don't really want to be a designer because I went there to study industrial design, that I was much more in love with film. But 
anyway, or integrated media. The thing is, the um, one of the assignments we were given in design history lecture uh, was to research a piece and she, uh, of Canadian design. And she sort of had three items. One was a, I, one, I don't remember what one was, I always forget. One was a, an electric kettle, like a hmm. hot, uh, hot water kettle. And the other one was a G2 Claritone. But there was, <laughs> there was a photocopy with no information. So sure. go ask around, find out what this is. Nobody knew what it was. Uh, finally, I was just, I was out having coffee with a friend of mine, uh, or colleague, Hugh, and he said, oh my God, my, my grandparents have one of those. I said, well, what is it? I have to do a paper on it and I don't know what it is. Wow. And he said, oh, it's a Claritone something or another. And so I did the research, thought nothing of it, uh, handed it in. Uh, she liked the paper. And I was literally driving out that night because it was an exciting Friday night for the life of an art student to get groceries. Um, and I, when you're going out that side of town, there was a bunch of um, junk stores, antique dealers. And literally in the window of one I used to go to was a Claritone G2. So I went the next wow. morning and I think I, I actually I know what it costs because it broke the bank. So I probably couldn't <laughs> eat for a month, but it was $600. Wow. And I just, because I fell in love with the stereo, just doing the research. Um, forgot about it, moved to Montreal, met Dan, found out he was an audio guy once. I said, hey, have you ever heard of Claritone? Right. They made funky stereos in the 60s. Right. Uh, we looked on eBay. Sure enough, there was one on eBay, G2. And never thought anything beyond that. And we went to one of the stores, antique stores, and they had a Project G uh, in the store. And we got it, restored it. And again, that was it. But suddenly we just decided, well, at that point, it was like 2006. We like these things. Eight, <laughs> there was, uh, uh, they were just popping up. And we decided, right. oh, well, let's buy it. And next thing you know, Dan's parents' basement is full of Claritone G2s and Gs. And it's like, <laughs> what are we going to do with these? It's like, they're nice, but it wasn't filled. But we've we've gone through at least thirty at this point. Wow, that's um, got to be the most certainly of uh, most. Of, it feels like most of those have gone to LA. Uh, we just okay. uh, we just sold one actually, which is going to LA uh, next month. Um, Very cool. But yeah, someone some uh, property developer uh, out west contacted us because we had built a website. Uh, says, you know, how much for one of your Claritones? And weirdly. We had no intention or even thought about selling them. And it's, it's like I say, it's not regular, but, you know, every once in a while, somebody will contact you. There is a level of quality to them. Yeah. G2s, because they were made cheaper and they, because they were half the price of the G, the G didn't sell very well. Uh, the sound quality is okay. Sure. Uh, certainly it's fun to listen to. It's a very fun stereo to listen to. Uh, the first generation, uh, which is the T4 Project G, it's not high font. I mean, it's certainly cool, like, but the sound, there's nothing like it. It's just, it fills a space so completely. And we, we found out when the, in 2008, there was a Claritone retrospective on the 50th anniversary of the founding of the company, um, where we met the co-founders, Peter Monk and David Gilmore. Oh, wow. And we were several of our stereos in the collection on display for the six months. <laughs> I bet. And, the co-founder of the company, because we were playing it on our own T4 Project G, uh, which we got in Winnipeg, found in Winnipeg. We were supplying the sound for this space, which has got to be at least 6,000 square feet. It wasn't being piped through the speakers, right? It was literally just amazingly filling the space. And the founder of the company came up to me and he says, has this been doctored in any way? Co-founder, I says, is it being piped in or is, it, is this the, I said, this is not even restored. This is the original amp that you're listening to. 
Um, that's incredible. So yeah, and that's our daily. We listen to that one. That's on the cover of the book. That one actually is yeah. is the acrylic restoration something that you've done? Do you have pieces we, made? You know, we that, have th- plastic so polishes that will do minor abrasions. Okay. Acrylic is weird, especially older acrylic, because what can happen? People would sometimes use Windex or harsh cleaners on them. Yeah, uh, that will cause hazing. So you'll get them; they're almost uh, like a fog looking. Um, we did devise a machine uh, with a hot wire, uh, which we learned how to build on YouTube, to wow. fold our own lids, like to get the sheet of acrylic pre-cut and then fold. Ah, and we, ah. we must have gone through, how many did we go through? Many. We went through a lot. And acrylic is expensive. And acrylic is not yeah, cheap. And we went through cheap. so many. Not quite loose. And we got one and it was like, it's not perfect, yeah, but, but it's we got it down. But it's not perfect, but it's imperceptibly good. The, the G2 has these little plastic, uh, like paired up hinges for the lid to the, the lever on. Sure. And uh, they're often broken. So I decided we got a GE2 once that had aluminum uh, pins. Uh, we call them pins. Yeah. And I was like, wow, well, I could probably make one, make a set. And I used to actually make them out of aluminum, carving and drilling and little tiny drills to make the whole set. And it was actually really kind of weirdly uh, zen to make yeah, those in. It's like just, it's purely manual work it's almost no thought i'm sure a casual follower follower of yours right um probably looks at the quality and 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 sort of the um the curation that you're doing when you're when you're posting not really envisioning that you have created hinges have you know refinished furniture yourself i i mean those are all you know very admirable in in my perspective from from just a diy uh, you know process uh you gotta do it you gotta cut your teeth right i one of the questions i actually did have for you in terms of refinishing and or collecting uh was about mistakes you know have you made any big let's call it you know mistakes where you sold something and and maybe it was a little too low or you refinished something that shouldn't have been yeah, tell us what you did wrong and that you want to keep secret. That's the interesting. That's kind of um, why I was asking. <laughs> okay, Dan's got a story. We picked up a Caroselli chair, a designer we always thought was Japanese because his name really does sound Japanese. Yeah. But, but anyway, that's not the case. We They are easily $12,000, $14,000. Uh, they still make them and they cost that. Weirdly, the original is in good shape, about the same as a new one. Oh, They're wow. There's no way you can make them uh, automatically. Everything is hand done with these. And uh, it's not everyone's favorite chair. It's a rather, it's, again, it's a, probably a piece of design that people are sort of on the fence about or either hate or love. Sure. <clears throat> a dealer had a black one that was in really rough shape, but it was all there, it was intact. And the, the leather is so intricately, because it's a shell, fiberglass shell, okay. uh, with like forms and curves, as you would think, very large. And the leather has to be cut very precisely to be glued onto the foam that fits into that shell. And then it's literally riveted around the edge and it creates a really industrial, but very still organically modern piece. Uh, It was actually introduced in 1963 and uh, very forward thinking for the time. Um, So we, Dan painstakingly took all the, drilled out all the rivets of which that'd be like hundred, easily a hundred, right? And took out the leather, cleaned off the dead foam off the back, cut, every stitch so that all the panels would be there so we could take to an upholsterer because it's right. more complicated than I could do. Sure. Take to an upholsterer, uh, took all the chrome pieces out so they could be redone, 
uh, this, the, the base has a Chrome support. And we, he put the leather in a, um, in a garbage bag. Okay. Right. And I thought, I looked in the garbage bag, said, should I take this out when I go? I look in the garbage, oh, it's the leather pieces. Put the bag back down. Dan takes the garbage out. Remember, he put it in the bag. Takes the garbage out, takes the leather, oof, into the dumpster, and it's gone forever. <laughs> well, that is exactly the type of story I was looking for. So. <laughs> now, the, the thing is, it's, it's disheartening, I'd say that. But if you look at there's so many photos, any proper upholsterer could easily, maybe not easily, but they could easily, yeah, like yeah. I said, easily again, but they could do it. Uh, the chair is still there. It just, the leather is missing. So the, the templates are missing. We have thought about contacting the company to see if they would sell yeah. just the leather. Yeah. Um, but uh, we haven't done that yet. One of the many unfinished projects here. There are so many unfinished projects. Yeah, that, they they really add up. My uh, <sighs> So my Eames Lounge uh, did not, I got it used, you know, secondhand. It got it for a pretty decent price, maybe about half the, half the new price. Yeah. Uh, but it doesn't have any buttons. So this was one of pretty, pretty early on. Yeah, that's an easy one. Uh, relatively easy, you know, yeah. but, but what I did, um, I forget who recommended this at the time, but I, I contacted Herman Miller to get samples of the black leather because okay. they were just enough to use for a button. Huh. As opposed oh. to sending them back in, yeah, that that was like a little little <laughs> hack that I uh, again still unfinished. <laughs> but and that's I have why the, they no I longer the send samples. leather samples. <laughs> <laughs> Potentially, uh, yeah, that was that was the hack. Um, so it's still on the list, but yeah, I got samples. They're sitting around somewhere from Herman Miller. I can match up the right black. I mean, it's not gonna. Uh, not going to cover up the cat scratches, but that's a different, different mid-century. Yeah, yeah, I have a Maine Coon. Uh, so he's got cat. the mid-century look, but <laughs> but it's I, the he's got his claws. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, I think the only good tip I ever learned is a mean one. Uh, actually, I know tons of good tips, but is if you're yeah, sure you get a bunch. working with a dealer, uh, try buying at the end of the month. They got to make rent soon. Mm. Sure. Yeah. I know it's me. It's me. Also, too, always establish a relationship with your local dealers, whether it's drugs or furniture. Um, <laughs> just it's joking. true. Because they are always, they have people, if you have a piece you're looking for, they, they you can almost avoid any of their markup by buying it from them before it even hits the floor. Sure. Uh, most of them are good about it. Some they say they will, but you never hear from them. Yeah. Um, and then it's a but, network. Right. And, and Very much I, I want to, you know, certainly going back to the, the vision for the podcast a little bit, right. We, we want to have on some dealers. I want to have on, uh, I think I said descendants in the trailer and for the purposes of understanding what the life of some of these designers mm. may have been like, certainly covering the, the projects that those folks might be working on at the moment as well. Um, but you know, what, <laughs> what was Charles and, and Ray's favorite music or food or, you know, kind of the simple stuff, the way they live their I, lives. That's kind of I what know they love Nina Simone. About. Huh? Well, who doesn't? I wouldn't. You like me. Exactly. Why wouldn't you love Nina Simone? <laughs> right. My favorite walking music. Whenever I'm walking, I love, I put, put on this giant playlist of like 50 Nina Simone songs, at least just, there's always something that syncs up with Nina Simone. I don't know quite what something you're seeing in the street or whatever. Or you look at a building somehow. Just she, she's, I think she's psychic in retrospect. <laughs> it's like wow. yeah, it, posthumously psychic. 
Yeah. But my one of my favorite stories is if we go back to um, designers, what their life was like. Yeah. Finn, Finn Yule, I people could easily argue, is the greatest Danish designer. Sure. Uh, easily. Uh, his fluid designs are some of the most beautiful things. Like the N53 or N43 uh, chair is easily one of the most beautiful chairs ever designed. Simple as that. Um, he never wanted to go to art. Because in D- Denmark, you went to study architecture or sure. you apprentice before becoming a designer. All yeah. the early furniture designers were uh, architects. His, uh, he wanted to be an art historian. He spent all his time in the museums right. and wanted to be an art historian. And his father would have none of it. Hmm. Father forced him to go to become an architect and therefore a designer and left probably the greatest design, Danish design legacy in history. But, <laughs> but also I can't help but thinking as a fan of art, that perhaps we lost one of the greatest art historians in history. <laughs> Potentially. I, I think that is, is weird because even today, uh, I can say today, but when I was at school in the nineties at art school, uh, the idea of becoming a, a designer was still like, why do you want to be a designer? Like, it doesn't seem like a real job. And the first thing I learned in one of the early design classes is that pick up any object. Somebody had to sketch that out. Someone had to design that. There is no object on the planet man-made that somebody didn't design. Yep. Um, and I thought, wow, that is the universal, the universal aspect of design. We all live with it. I also yeah. learned ergonomics doesn't necessarily mean good. <laughs> right. There's bad ergonomics and good ergonomics. But ergonomics is simply the way we interact with an object. Yeah, that's all it is. It's not. It's ergonomically designed. Yes, of course it is. All things are. <laughs> yeah, I had a good friend after I had graduated college. I had a good friend that went to Pratt and yeah. um, went and and saw their industrial design showcase for the year. Yeah. And I really considered at that point <laughs> going back to to school yeah. for industrial design. I have not gotten, I, uh, put that on the list too. Um, I would, it's, at the school it's I went to, it's one as Canada's oldest art and design school, established in the 1870s. And I mean, even the country was less than 10 years old. <laughs> you know, the country's less than 10 years old. We need an art school. Um, <laughs> but at those days, it was literally just a finishing school for women, like to learn the delicate art of painting and whatnot. Uh, but then it was one of the first in the world to have an industrial design program. However, as a school that had only 1,400 students uh, total, um, they, get, they only let 16 people out of the 400 foundation students into the industrial design program. So wow. you had to work so hard to get in. Yeah. And everybody, I mean, I think 40 plus people applied. So one in four was getting in and they wouldn't, they wouldn't send you an email like they, like they would these days. They did the old fashioned <laughs> way. Went to the industrial design department on the cork board outside the entrance to that area. There was a printed list of names. Wow. And, and sure enough, there's the name it was on that's my name. I got in and I was so thrilled. That's incredible. And something weird kind of happened was I started in September. I started the program because we got in at the end of the, it's in May or April or May. And then sure. September rolls around thrilled to be in one of the best industrial design programs in the country. One of the, like the elite of elite designer teacher, industrial designer who are going to be our teachers. It was wow. a studio program. So you're doing all hands-on stuff. And I hated every moment of it. <laughs> I so, so there was there was so much math. <laughs> yeah, a lot of math. And I remember I was to walk home. I would walk past uh, built. There's like old Victorian sort of uh, 
a Romanesque style building sure. on the street. And I knew it was part of the college because uh, I had done a bunch of foundation stuff there in that building. And I remember sitting, uh, sitting on the, like, these double steps that went up to a landing. There was these solemn looking people smoking, dressed mostly in black. But I, I recognized one of them. So I went up and started talking to her. And she said, what are you studying? Because I knew her from foundation. And she said, oh, I'm studying film integrated media. I said, and I just thought, oh, that's so exciting. But tell me what you're studying, what you're doing, what your courses yeah. are. And I walked, went home. And I remember I had a task to do that day. I had to clean out the storage room. And I remember finding a bunch of old uh, sketches that I've done of chairs and cars and all the things that I liked. Sure. And I said, I said, what happened? <laughs> Such a, like, I used to love this thing. But the foundation year exposed me to so much design and art, but mostly the art and the expressive stuff. And I just <laughs> expressive stuff. And I literally the next day I was in integrated media. Yeah. Um, I, I remember thinking, she said, you can't do any film or video courses because those are year long courses. You're halfway through the school year, essentially coming in. She said, you have to do all the lectures. So it's so great. I'm in a studio based <laughs> and all I can do is seminars and lectures. But she said, look, you can still, if you can go, if you get somebody to check out the equipment for you, like on the program. And I remember um, I made a film based on a story that a foundation student had told me about being one of the Vietnamese uh, boat people uh, in the 70s, where they were put wow. into a concentration camp in Hong Kong. And I made them the artsiest five minute short documentary about wow. that which won so many awards Wow! Like, and I wasn't even in a film or video class. And I was like, I won a $5,000 scholarship at the end of the year. Uh, it won a, a couple of TV prizes and it was shown on TV. And I got a special That's commendation type thing from the Toronto Vietnamese community. Right? So for telling their story so beautifully. <laughs> That's incredible. I mean, um, you, you and that's, right yeah, and people ask me, why aren't you still doing it? You know, why aren't you still doing film and stuff? It's just, I hate to say it, but if you want to be a filmmaker in Canada, you have to move to LA. Mm -hmm. um, as it, I mean, sure. Quebec is a bit of an exception. There's a very viable self-supported film industry here. And um, because it's French language. So if they want to see French language films, well, they'll go see their own mostly. Mm -hmm. But that being said, it, they, they're not settling. French language films, Quebec films are incredible. They're, most of them are just so well made. Well, I think that is where I continued to learn more and, and begin to spot things, right? Ultimately mm. in set design, I think, you know, maybe, maybe there's a future for you doing that, right? Because I, I think that there are just so many pieces. I've mm. seen a Curtis Jare. I've seen um, more recently, I forget which, which TV show that was in. I've seen a, a number of, Jeanerette chairs. How do you pronounce that? Jeanerette. Jeanerette. Yeah. I've seen a number. I mean, I, we know the Kardashians have them and, you know, the, the, there's a bunch. But, um, you know, the, there there are just so many pieces featured prominently in mm -hmm. so many, you know, TV and, and film um, portrayals that I, I think, you know, hopefully what we do will help people have those synapses fire a little bit more and say, Oh, I, I know what's around me. And then at some point, like, like we talked about earlier, maybe you'll be at the thrift store and, and just stumble upon one of those items. I'll um, say one thing about the Kardashians though, and Kanye West. I am not a yeah. fan, but that's, you know, and it's easy to dump on those people, Sure, you know, for their, for the, their absurdity, really in a lot of cases, but 
you know, that's they're getting paid to do what they do. Yeah. Um, I will say one thing about Kanye West. He is he has an incredible collector's eye. Mm. I'm not joking. Kanye West knows the good stuff and he knows it well. Wow. Uh, and it's not cheap. But even early Kanye West, like 2006 Kanye West, sure. uh, had like uh, a Maurice Kalka uh, presidential desk, for instance. Wow. And I'm thinking, those are rare, expensive, and why does he have it? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and But then he went and did a new place in LA a few years ago, and it's nothing but Prouvé. Everything is Jean Prouvé. Uh, yeah, just a, it's very, very minimal, the style that he went with. But I'm looking at the Prouvé pieces and going, those are the best of Jean Prouvé. Uh, he wow. has, and I can't think that he of the places that he's designed or had designed that he wasn't didn't have a hand in it somehow. So, yeah. despite sort of the the buffoonishness of him as a person, sometimes you know you got to give him credit. Uh, he knows the good stuff. But yeah. getting back to the, the and an uh, invitation, Kanye. You heard I, it here. You know, I've got a few people. Come I've on. already been, uh, as I've said, I've already got a few people lined up uh, to, yeah, to do so, this with. So why don't we? Um, I'd like to formally call that repeating segment that we have uh, nominations. So do you want to uh, formally nominate somebody? Are we in a position to do that? Uh, not yet, uh, okay. because we, I would actually like to have a thumbs up. I, I do have somebody in mind for the first one uh, because he, he transitioned into design. And I don't want to give too much away. Yeah. But he was. Give us some cliffhangers. Think of the 90s comedy music duels, duos. Uh, Flight of the Concords, for instance, sure. was a very big one. Uh, up here, we had uh, Pork Corky and the Juice Pigs. I think they were three guys. Uh, and he was with, I don't remember the name of the, you know, the, the duo, but he was a comedy duo. They did a TV show in Australia, several series of it. Cool. And next thing you know, he's doing Man About the House, which is a docu-series on Australian modern architecture. Wow. And turns out he was very, very good at it. Like surprisingly good at it, but his way his way there was he had bought a great mid-century modern house in Melbourne, I think. Sure. And I don't know if he fixed it up or not, but he just fell in love with the place. I think he still lives there. But he wanted to show something that he thought was a sort of forgotten aspect of Australia is that it has a great design legacy. Yep. Uh, and then he's curated museum shows since then. His most recent docudrama, a docu series. Uh, was designing a legacy, uh, wow. talking about the greatest examples of Australian architecture and the but giving it a human face by talking and interviewing the people who live with this architecture, who live in these houses. I had a question about the most prolific polymath, right? And, and definition being, um, you know, some a okay. designer that might be interested in, in many different things. I, uh, there is one. You got one. The, okay. The, no, yes, <laughs> we yes, talked yes, about Finn Yule, but the yeah, greatest. I think probably the greatest polymath. As you know, it, Italians do things differently in all regards, from car design to architecture, certainly in their, their design. Sure. And they always do it right. Um, it's something uniquely beautiful about Italian design. And the country embraces it. Uh, they like The fashion industry of the world is in Italy because they embrace design. Absolutely. Um, but they also embrace beautiful things. It's not necessarily a utilitarian aspect to it. It's often, they're elegant so often. The best at doing that was Giovanni. Giopanti was probably the greatest polymath. He was a publisher, a teacher, uh, an architect, a designer, a painter. Just did it. He was a producer. He was wow. also everybody gets the impression who gets into design, and they read about 
these sort of lofty texts about Giovanni and the things that yeah. he's done. Um, uh, and they seem to think of uh, almost, because you look at his photo and you go, what a severe, stern looking character. But he wasn't. He was actually incredibly warm and open and also was so key in getting young designers into design. Uh, so he kept a very open studio. Uh, so the young people could go there to see firsthand design, to get interested in design, to go study design. Uh, probably the, one of the greatest, not just polymaths, but influencers of Italian modern. Just Giovanni started it all. But, oh, he's a ceramicist, a metalsmith. <laughs> he did. But uh, that also, uh, yeah. So Giovanni, for sure. Just You don't need to Google Giovanni to see everything. And a career that spanned almost 70 years. So, Well, I think that's a, that's a great metaphor for where we want to bring people, right? We, we want to have that openness. We want to make sure that we're coming in and, and giving people a ramp into, yeah. um, you know, this, this design style. And uh, yeah, let's, let's leave it with Gio Ponte. DC, thank you so much. Thank you guys. Um, it's been fun and yeah, we will, uh, we will catch up soon and, and schedule that next episode. 